anything or do you want to just do you want to just yeah. type us, take it away thank you my name's craig an alcoholic um i'm on my phone i've never used the phone before so i can't see anybody so that's a bonus no stage fright and uh thank you very much for asking me to come on this meeting tonight and um I'm not new to sharing, but, you know, this is a 50-minute lead and, and, you know, I hear a lot of people, they talk about their beginnings and I never I never do that. I normally share, you know, how it works basically when I was a drunk, what I did and what I do now, you know. But um, I'm going to insight more into maybe my upbringing. First of all, my sobriety date is the 21st of January. 2021 so tomorrow i will be celebrating two years of sobriety and i do feel sober you know i don't always act according but i do feel sober and that takes me that i'm new to recovery yeah i was at a meeting the other night and they said you're still a newcomer till you're five years and i'm like oh god you know i'm not new to aa i've been around 15 years and i had a lot of time without a drink but that's all it was without a drink you know and you know my journey Back in the beginning, my earliest memories of childhood were, and I've, I've never spoke about this. I've only ever spoken to this about my sponsor, to my sister, and to the woman I love. You know, I've never spoken about this before because it makes me feel vulnerable, okay? You know, it makes me feel vulnerable, and, I, and nobody likes to feel vulnerable. You know, I feel like I'm, you know, in Sainsbury's car park with my pants pulled down, which is a ridiculous analogy. Absolutely ridiculous. I shop at Tesco's. What a crazy thing to say, you know. But my earliest memories are, you know, being a small child and I'm living in a house with this man and a woman and a boy and a girl, you know. And I'm assuming that's my mum and dad and my brother and sister. But it was my auntie and my uncle and my two cousins. And this guy used to come and visit great big hulk of a man, big beard. And I remember him bringing me a big teddy, you know. And... um it was all very lovely. I felt, remember being a toddler, feeling very, very safe. And then that all changed one day and I, and I was moved away and I was introduced to this woman who was my mother. And I was very confused, you know. She'd been in a mental institute and getting the belladonna treatment. She was being electric shocked in her head, you know, that's what they did in these days. So that was very frightening for me. I remember being very afraid from a young age. You know, and then this girl came along, a bit older than me, and this was my sister, you know. And um, that was a bit of a, like, what's going on? You know, I was very, very fearful. And there were lots of bodies, you know, lots of societies helping us with furniture and bringing us food hampers. And my mom wasn't very well, but I didn't know at the time, you know. And uh, I remember my sister telling me that she'd been with family, but I remember my mother adamantly telling me she'd been in a children's home because she was naughty. You know, so I was terrified of stepping out of line, absolutely terrified I was stepping out of line. And I wasn't allowed out the house much. You know, I went to school and I'd, I'd go to the shops when she did me a note for her cigarettes, but I wasn't allowed to play out, you know, and I was always in bed very early. And I remember in the summer, you know, six o'clock was my bedtime. So I'd be um, four, five, six, seven then, you know, and I remember going to my bedroom and looking out the bedroom window and it's in the summer it's still glorious sunny and there's kids playing out kids younger than me and i couldn't understand why so i'd be there looking out the window and then they start waving at me you know they'd see me so then i'd put the neck curtain down and i'd look at them playing through this neck curtain you know terrified i was going to be caught and 
Now, when I went to school, I had trouble playing with the other kids. You know, they're all running around and I'm just standing there watching people, just watching people. Because like I was still back in my bedroom looking out of the bedroom window, you know, and it wasn't, you know, this went on for a long time. I wasn't allowed out. I wasn't allowed to mix, you know, and I don't know if that's anything to do with my alcoholism, but I do think I was trained to be an isolator. That's when I became an isolator from a very early age, you know. And then my mum gets into this thing with it. She starts writing to this guy in the prison. And, you know, and he comes out and he's very nice. You know, he's very nice to me. When I say very nice, he drew tattoos all over my arms with felt tips, you know, and he was really nice. But uh, it didn't stay that way, you know. I know, I've been a prisoner. I know what guys think about. You think about when you're going to come out, where you're going to gonna go, when you're going to get laid, all these things, you know. And maybe this was on this guy's mind. Anyway, before long, my mother fell pregnant and I had a, a little half-brother. And that was a bit of a free thing for me because when this baby was born, I was allowed out. I was just allowed out and I just went and played and but I didn't know how to interact with other children, you know, unless it was in the classroom and stuff. But that relationship didn't stay well long, you know. There was a lot of violence, you know. I remember being six, seven. I'd watch my mother get beaten. I wasn't allowed to leave the room. I'd make, I'd watch her be made to urinate in the corner of the room like a dog. I wasn't allowed to, re I watched her get raped, you know, and every time I run over, I just get hit. And, you know, that was it. And I, I even watched my mother cut her own wrists, you know. And the police came and the ambulance came. And I'm about seven, eight years of age then. And she, and I remember her just saying, telling me if she didn't do it, he'd have done it deeper, you know. And I ended hating men, right. And I ended up, so I'm an isolator and I hate men, hate violence of any kind of, and, uh, I was always, even in school, I was just away from everybody. I didn't really mix well with boys. I, I got on more with girls, and I remember thinking, perhaps I'm gay. And I remember I, I saw somebody about this, you know, a few a few years ago now, and, and they said, maybe it's just because you were safe with, with your mother and your sister. You know, maybe that's just how you were. You didn't like, you know, the roughy-tufty of the boys from what you've been through. But, you know, that's how it was, you know. And then I went to school and I left school and I, I was a bit naughty. I was a bit of a handful, you know. And I used to get free dinners, they called them those, where you got like, but you were pointed out. There was four of us in, in the class and, you know, they were, we, I was scruffy. You know, I was always untidy, funny clothes, you know. And and I remember these guys used to come and they used to pinch the pinch our tickets office, you know, and, I, and one day I was just so hungry. I was the kind of kid that was like, I wanted this holidays to end so I could get a good meal, you know. And I remember this kid went to take the ticket off me and I beat him, man, with everything I got. And I battered him and I battered his mate and I got the tickets and I gave them to the kids and I said, we're all right, that ain't going to happen again. And that's how I grew. I got a lot of friends then because I learned to fight and I was pretty good at it. You know, so I'm I'm let loose now and I want to get in the pubs and I'm aggressive and I want to drink. I want to change the way I feel, you know, and, and, and that was constantly. But I, you know, the kids, normal kids are drinking cider and I'm drinking wine. You know, there used to be a thing called Thunderbird, which was really strong. And I always used to want to get on that. And I'd even think I don't want the blue label. I want the red label, pear wine, I think it was, because I that's gets me. You know what I mean? That gets me drunk pretty quick. And I became a handful. You know, I couldn't wait to get in the pubs, you know, the pub, the estate where I grew up, I'm back here now. And 
the pub on the estate. You'd sit outside as teenagers and smell the beer, hear the music. And then they'd come out the door fighting. And I'd be like, I can't wait to get in there. This is my forte, you know. Anyway, so, yeah, that, that, was, that was my upbringing. You know, it wasn't ideal. And I was very different, very awkward. And just, like, I was always on the outside of the circle unless drink was involved in and I was in the middle, you know, and that's, that's how it went. I lost a lot of things through drink. You know, I did a lot of fighting, I prison sentence, a lot, lot of court appearances. You know, I was on the front page of the paper twice. None of those four, you know, firearms offense was one. Another one was fighting the guy with a medieval flail as it described, but that fed my ego and that, all the boys were like, yeah, man, you know, let's, I was popular. You know, I was popular for all the wrong reasons, you know, and I like to drink. I like to drink. And the more I drank, the more popular I became in my head. You know, I was 10 foot tall. I could fight like Bruce Lee. I could dance like John Travolta, irresistible to women and all this kind of malarkey, you know. But I was always fucked by the end of the evening. I, I'm sorry, I do swear. Uh, I'll try not to. But, you know, I didn't do much of my drinking in the church or a convent or in front of my granny. You know, I'll try and keep it to the minimum. And it's just an ignorant form of expression, I suppose. You know, I'm justifying my bad behavior already. <laughs> but, you know, my drinking went on and on and on and out of control and stuff. And, and I crashed the car. I got married and I, and, I, and I crashed the car. I was three times over the limit and they had to cut me out. I was quite lucky to survive. I broke all the bones in my one foot. Shoulder was smashed up. My elbow was smashed up. So I went on the wagon, you know, and I did this thing and I got a fridge and I filled it with Bex Blue. Bex Blue is a non-alcoholic beer, which has a 0.5% of alcohol. And I just kept drinking this stuff and I didn't drink for well over a year after this car crash, you know, and it didn't bother me. I didn't have any DTs, withdrawals or anything, you know. And then I remember we went away to the Lake District with some friends and it was New Year's Eve and it was coming up to 12. And I said, shall I get a couple of bottles of champagne put on ice? You know, do you mind if I have another, if I have a drink? I haven't had a drink for over a year, you know. And uh, so I ordered a pint when I was doing that and midnight came. Anyway, I started drinking. Seven o'clock the next morning, everybody's gone. I'm in the hotel, some other hotel, and I'm drinking in the bar. And there's a woman walking around cleaning the ashtrays out with a paintbrush. And I'm back, back there, back there, back there straight away. Anyway, things didn't get any better. And I just carried on and carried on, you know. But I was so lonely, so, so lonely, so lonely. And I was frightened of everything. And there's this big I am thinking, but I was full of fear absolutely full of fear and there was always this emptiness this hole in the stomach that i i needed to fill with something and the only thing i could fill it was was with drink it was like my anesthetic to life you know and people ask me when when did you become a morning drinker because i i, I did become a morning drinker and i can't tell you exactly when that happened but i but i can tell you about the two decades that it carried on for you know i used to do stupid things I used to go to the shop and I used to ask for six miniatures of Smirnoff, right? I didn't want to ask for a big bottle because that made me look like a drunk, right? So I used to ask for six little miniatures and say, ah, I'm cooking beef stroganoff because I thought that sounded Russian. You know what I mean? I thought that's what it is, yeah. And then 
And then I'd pick up Fisherman's Friends and, and Extra Strong Mints and walk out the shop. And I'd have to do this, like, several different shops. And I was a driver at the time. That's bad. Driver at the time. You know, my, my drinking took me to a lot of places. I remember my oldest son is a man now. And uh, his mom, it was a Sunday morning, his mom needed some powder milk for it, for him to be fed. So I said, yeah, yeah, I'll go and get the powder milk. And I think there was something else, a loaf of bread for some toast or something. Anyway, so I went out to the shops and I got, I've been out the night before, so I need topping up, right? So Kestrel Super was my thing then, 9.2. So I had a can of this and I start walking back and then I see the boys are going to the pub. You come in for a point? No, I haven't got any money. I don't. I didn't need any money where I lived around here. You just put it on the strap and you pay it off. And I took that milk back Monday morning. You know, what type of man does that? I did that. I did that. I have to own that. That's my truth. You know, I got little girls a few years later, and I'm taking them to Bali. They're sat on the back seat, and they got the Bali buns in, and their tutu skirts on. And I'm swigging vodka out of a bottle and I'm looking in the in the in the mirror in the car. And I'm taking them to Bali, you know, what type of man would do that? I did that. That's my truth. I love my children. You know, but that's how I was. I clearly, clearly loved alcohol more, more than anything. Absolutely more than anything, you know. So anyway, I didn't find AA. AA didn't find me. It was an action of my consequences. My family was sick to death of me, you know, and I went to my first AA meeting 17 years ago. And I went in the meeting and I felt like an extra off. One flew over the cuckoo's nest. I'm like, nah, this isn't for me. This isn't for me. So I left the meeting and I bought a bottle of wine. And I took it home to my wife, my ex-wife now. And I said, yeah, it was all right. I said, they told me to make sure we have our last drink together and to go back next week. You know, crazy. Anything for a drink. Anything for a drink. I didn't go back. I did go back 15 years, two years later, you know, because of all the consequences. And, I, and I'm sat in there and I don't want to be there. I don't want to be there. I want you people to show me how to drink socially. But I've never drunk socially. My social drinking turns to antisocial behavior, whether it, and it harms people, you know. I remember I always used to say, I hate bullies and I hate greed. And I remember being in the pub and my wife saying to me, you say you hate bullying and you hate greed. It's after time. You want more beer. The landlord is frightened to say no. You're bullying him because you're greedy. And I'm like, wow, wow, okay, you know. And I have to laugh at myself because if I don't, I'm not going to be, you know, it's how it is. I don't act like that today, you know. So I went to AA and they told me, don't take a drink one day at a time and come to the meetings. And I did that. I did that for one year, two year, three year, four year, five year, six years. And then I picked up a drink because that's all I did. I just didn't drink and I went to a meeting. I didn't understand anything they were going on about. People used to say, oh, my name's Fred and I'm a grateful alcoholic. And I used to think I'm not grateful. I haven't got Yorkshire tea and the biscuits are soft. You know what I mean? I was there for the wrong reasons. I didn't do the work. I just attended. I just attended. You know, my experience tells me if you don't drink and you just go to meetings and you don't do what's suggested, you've got a shelf life on your best before because that's what happened to me. You know, I was lucky enough after six years 
I got back to the rooms the next day. I had good people around me that came and got me. I was still pissed the next day, but they took me to the rooms, you know, and I got back. And I did this, did it again for two years, and I picked up a drink because I'm very sensitive, right? You know, when, my, when I can't control my emotions, my head will say, well, you can control your drink, you know, and I did that. I picked up in 10 years, I picked up three times. You know, luckily they were just, for one night and the next morning and I got back and then the one day I didn't get back and I was out there for a couple of years you know and I was just drinking drinking and drinking and drinking most of it on my own most of it you know I lived on my own now for for nine years but AA had ruined my drinking they talked about seeded places and, and stuff in the book and I was thinking I, that's not me I've never been to a brothel. I've never got drunk in a titty bar. and that. But now I realize my sordid place was my bathroom because I'd take myself off into the bathroom. I'd open a beer, I'd roll a cigarette, I'd put the extractor fan on, and I'd drink. I wasn't able to sit down and watch a film and just drink, you know, because it had been ruined for me. And that's what I used to do. I just used to drink one pint can of strong beer for a roll-up come and sit down within five minutes i'd be back in there i couldn't stay away because i just wanted the oblivion you know and then i'm looking at myself in the mirror and i'm sad and then i'm angry and i'm all these things but i had this tremendous higher power right the higher power of my time was the 24-hour garage yeah always there my higher power always there for me and I'd either walk to do the walk of shame or I'd drive if I couldn't walk 24 hours a day. None of this, the off-license shut and there's nowhere to go after 11 o'clock. 24 hours a day, I could just get up and I could drink. You know, and they tell me the most precious thing you're born with is this time. And the amount of time that I've come round and drank again to be put out. What a life. What a life, you know, absolutely crazy, crazy life. But anyway, I got back to AA and, and I kept going to the meetings, but I still wasn't still wasn't getting it. I could quote your pages out of the book and stuff, you know, but I, it, it's theory. It's theory until you put the work in. It's just theory. So I could quote all these pages and I'm like, I used to sit there in meetings and I used to tell people, all you need to know are the first three words on page 112. And I used to love it when I didn't know it. And that, that and simply it says, read this book. But I used to love it when they didn't know and I'd wait for them to start looking and I used to think, yeah, look at me, I know it all. But what I should have said was the first three words on page 110 apply to me. And that simply says he became worse. Yeah, because that's my truth. I became worse. I wasn't drinking but my thinking was still thinking. I was still the director. I still wanted everyone to do what I wanted to do. I was still angry, pointing the finger at people, at this, that. See, when I point the finger, funny thing is I got three th fingers pointing back at me. Yeah, I'm the problem, but I wouldn't accept that. And what happened then, lockdown came and there was no meetings to go to, you know? And people were saying, you need to get on the Zoom, Craig. You need to get on. And I'm like, I'm terrified of technology, right? I couldn't do it. I was too fearful. That was my truth, you know. I ride around on a Harley Davidson with notably the biggest motorbike 
gang in the world, if you like, you know, and I'd be like, yeah, you know, look at me, I'm badass. But I was so scared to get this Zoom thing under control case I couldn't do it. My only fear tonight on the meeting was if my internet failed, you know. That went out the window and then we had trouble with the sound. That's life. <laughs> That's life, you know. But the thing is, I got on Zoom. And because I picked up again, right, after two years, 18, 18 months, sorry, I picked up again. And my last drink was nothing. Right, it was five pint cans of Cronenberg, five point two percent. The percentages were so important to me, so important to me, because I thought four might not be enough, but eight might be too many. And I and I I got work the next day, so five pints, and I'm out like a count. And I'm like, how did that happen? I'd easily drink six pints an hour when I'm out, and then get on the shorts and all this, but it's a progressive illness. You know what I mean? They told me that, but I've proved that to myself because I got in the ring too many times. Got in the ring with King, King Alcohol, you know, and it's always beat me, always beat me. And I went on the meeting, and the first meeting I went on was a meeting called uh, The Broken Elevator, and I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to work the functions. And there's a guy on there, and he said, give me a number, I'll call you back after the meeting. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure you will. Yeah, so I gave him my number, and I'm in a bad way. I'm in a bad way. I had a bit of a spiritual awakening, I think. You know, there was no flashes of light or bolts of light on my ass. I simply accepted the fact, because I could live the life of a drunk because I'd survived this long and I kept doing it. But it dawned on me I couldn't live the life of a sober man. I couldn't stop. I couldn't stay stopped. That was my spiritual awakening. Anyway, at the end of the meeting, and, I, and I'm looking at pictures of my children, and I want to die, okay? I'm not bothered if I, if I stay alive. I want to go. I've had enough. I've tried it. I've tried everything, and, and I still keep drinking. I've had enough. And I'm looking at this picture. I'm looking at this picture, and my two younger daughters on there, and I'm like, they're too young for me to die. This is too, they're too young, you know? Anyway, in the phone rang. And this guy from America talks to me. And I talk to him. And we uh, we stay connected, you know. And there's a bit forward to the third edition, the last bit in the big book. It says, each day somewhere in the world, recovery begins when one alcoholic talks to another alcoholic, sharing their experience, strength, and hope. That's my experience. You know, I haven't had a drink since then. And I did a lot of Zoom. I don't do too much Zoom these days, but I did a lot of Zoom back then and I got a lot of service positions. And one of the best service positions I ever got was, I used to, there's a, uh, a group called the Edinburgh Primary Purpose and all they did was study the doctor's opinion. And my service position was I used to read the, read the doctor's opinion, but we read a chapter and then we'd, you know, we'd talk about it. And, you know, years prior they told me, First 164 pages, you've got to read that and then you're going to be okay. So I know everything. So I'm starting at page one, Bill's story. I can't relate to the stockbroker. I can't relate to a lot of stuff he's going on. And then on the, on the second, third page, halfway down, it says he became a lone wolf. Then I could relate. You know, I got a tattoo of a big wolf on my arm because I used to describe myself as a lone wolf because I'm a badass biker, you know. And really, really, 
It's just a polished up way of saying an isolator, surely. I'm a natural isolator. My upbringings prove that to me. It's clarified that to me. Long morph my ass. You know what I mean? Just another name. Just another name. But the doctor's opinion, reading through this and studying it with these people, because I was never going to look at pages that have got XXIV and all that. And I'm going to go to page one, like I said. But I had to go back there. And that was a paramount for me. Paramount for me. Because it talked about this head that won't accept stuff. You know, it's going to be okay next time. It's going to be okay next time. A body that can't break things down until we're basically fucked. Yeah? Not like the normal drinker. And then he talked about the spirituality. Well, the life I've had, I didn't know what they're talking about. How would I know anything about spirituality? You know, I do, I know a bit more about it today, you know, but it taught me that I was nothing special. I wasn't unique. I was just a bog standard drunk. That was it. And that was such a relief, you know, because I always thought I was a bit special. You know, I always thought I was a bit different. There was no hope for me, you know. And I've heard a lot of hopeless stories by people that have been sober for many years, you know. So there is always hope if you have willingness, you know. And I was asked, I had a sponsor on Zoom and I hated him. You know what I mean? I got to be grateful to the guy. He gave me a lot of time and he took me through the steps. But I was always fearful of ringing him. I had to ring him at a certain time. And I just was like, oh, man, I can't, be, I can't do this, you know? But he taught me a lot. He showed me a lot and he didn't take any shit, you know? But I didn't like him. No, I didn't like him, you know? Do I like everybody I meet in AA? I can't say I do, you know, but I have a good sponsor today, you know, and I met him at the meeting. He did his first, he's 23 years sober. He did his first 22 years of recovery in London. And he was a lot to do with, with the organization, with the um, intergroup, London intergroup, you know, very wise man, very matter of fact, totally opposite to me as a retired lecturer, you know, and I used to be frightened texting him that I'm putting the, <laughs> putting the full stops and starting the sentences I should and it was like but anyway I pick him up once a week and we go to a I have a home group today I never used to have a home group I used to drift from meetings to meetings you know I used to think I was a bit of a nomad but I have a home group today that's very important and my sponsor knows he's my sponsor sent me a lovely message today happy birthday Eve because it's my birthday tomorrow two years and like you know he's lovely like that but he's just so matter of fact, and he used to say, it said to me, he beats me with his stick and he calls this stick, listen to the similarities, not the differences, because I spent years listening to the differences, you know, and we worked through the steps together. And because I liked him, he got more out of me. Do you know what I mean? I wasn't frightened to drop the guard, drop the ego. You know, the willingness was there. I've shed a lot of tears with him. Sometimes I have to phone him up and say, I need to come to your house after work. I've really messed up. I've upset somebody and I have to go. And I have to just dump everything on him, you know, and it's okay. But he knows he's my sponsor. My first sponsor passed away at 53 years sober. He, that was my sponsor by name. And then when he died, I drank, you know, because he left me. But I didn't use him as a sponsor. I was just on the pity pot, you know. But then I got into the, I got into this recovery you see because i like i never used the word recovery i just used to say i was in aa you know and um took me a long time to find this god of my understanding because i didn't like god because 
He let me down when I was a kid. Yeah, this is what I think. But I have a higher power, but I call him God. And it's just God by name, because in the big book, it says the word God nearly 400 times. It says higher power twice. Years ago, they told me to stick with the winners. So I call my 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 belief is called God. But there's no religion involved. Absolutely no religion involved. And the most important thing of the God of my understanding, he understands me. Right? He understands me. It says in the book, Upon Awakening, and that still blows me today, Upon Awakening, because I wake up. I might be a bit pissed off that it's half past four and i got to go and do a 12-hour shift, you know? But I'm in my own house. I'm in my bed. I'm not on the floor in my bathroom. I'm not on the sofa in sick. I'm not in somebody else's house. I'm not in the bushes. I'm in my own home, you know? And that's brilliant. And I say to my sponsor, like, well, I don't drop to my knees and I don't do the prayer straight away. And he says, it says upon awakening, awakening is a process. See, so my God of my understanding understands I need a coffee and a cigarette. And then I come a bit, I come to, you know, when I'm round and I've got to do the stuff that I got to do. Because what I have learned, every morning I wake up with untreated alcoholism and that's my truth. Every single morning, doesn't matter how good I've been the next day, every day is a new day. It's a day at a time deal. And my truth is every morning I wake up with untreated alcoholism and I need a bit of time to myself. You know, when I go through the process and I say the step three prayer and the step seven prayer, I've changed things slightly. I have my own prayers now because what I found when I was doing the step three and the step, I'd, I'd be chanting them. I'd be doing a jig. I'd be like, just da -da 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 -da. so I just have to stop and write it down, you know, and that's still included, but I have a different way of praying, you know, and it's very important for me is page 86 and 87. There's some chapters on there, which helped me get through the day before I go out, you know, some of it's the nighttime stuff, but I don't need to deal with that in the morning. You know, because when I leave the house, I've got three things that piss me off. Guaranteed, every day, and that's people, places, and things. Yeah, I struggle. I struggle. So I have to be prepared. You know, I don't use the serenity prayer as a prayer. I use that as a moral code of conduct for me, to help me get through. You know, and I try to maintain this conscious, this constant contact with my God. And... Even if I'm cursing him and like, what's going on? I'm still in contact, right? I'm not doing it on my own. So I'm still in contact, however I am. But, you know, I've come across people in the day and I, I can be very sharp with them and I have to apologize straight away because you see this recovery and this big book and the program we have, it shows us about our wrongs. You know, we see them and that's a mile, mile of improvement then when I used to be and I think that I've done nothing wrong. So I acknowledge these wrongs and I'll often apologize to people, you know, within minutes, oh, I'm sorry, John, I was a bit short with you then, but I'm a bit tired and always justification, always justification. And, you know, I didn't sleep well. And they'll be like, yeah, yeah, that's no problem. It's all right, it's just work. I said, yeah, yeah, but I need to apologize for me. They do with it what they want, okay? This is a selfish program, I have to keep me right. So I have to apologize for me, you know, and it gets me through the day and I don't do things perfectly. You know, lots of things have happened to me in sobriety and I've changed, you know, I've 
I've always thought I was a bit of a, you know, a man's man, really, you know, and big in the biker world. And, uh, you know, I used to have a big beard until recently, and I used to hide behind this beard, yeah? It was all big beard. And I'd be like, you know, it was my character. My character, it suited me, you know? And, um, and I shaved it off. And I felt very vulnerable. Very vulnerable. I had two reasons to shave it off. I wanted the woman that I loved to kiss me without any fear. And I wanted to just be me, down to the core, you know, hiding nothing. And I felt very, very vulnerable. And I still go out to these bike clubs and they haven't seen me with a, with a clean-shaven face and they're, like, making a big deal out of it. Like, oh, my God, oh, my God. And I'm like, yeah. And it's good to be vulnerable sometimes. It's good to see the real you, you know. And that's how it is. But um, I make a lot of mistakes and I try to learn from them. But, you know, sobriety has given me, you know, I've gone from being a man's man to a, I'm being man enough to show emotion. You know, I cry when I need to cry. I laugh when I need to cry. I listen. I have empathy. And I had this thing and I fell in love with somebody, right? Big deal for a man like me. I learned to love unconditionally because there was always conditions to my love, always conditions to my love. I was always the director, the light man and everything, you know. But I wasn't very good at it. Okay, I wasn't very good at it. I met this woman and I wasn't very good at it because I didn't. I got no examples of how to behave. I was a bit scared because I couldn't control my emotions, you know. And uh, there she is, this woman in front of me, you know, what every man could want. And you forget, leave every man out of it. I'll rip their head off. See, character defects don't need any invitation from me. Standing in front of me was all this man could want, right? And I'm making a mess of it. You know, I treated her badly at times, not intentionally, but we'd fall out and then I'd throw bombs at her and talk about her and things I deeply regret, you know, deeply regret. But we remain friends, you know, and that's good. That's good. And, you know, I've had the best birthday I've ever had in October. It was just fantastic, you know. I spent it with a person I love and they got me a cake and, and a candle that didn't stop sparkling for ages, you know what I mean? And I was like a little boy, a little boy, and I was like, nobody's ever done this for me on their birthday because I hadn't. None of that in the childhood. You know, when I was married, we got a lot of kids It was all too busy and I was too busy going to the fridge for a beer, you know, and it was just like, it blew me away. Memories that I shall never forget. You know, this Christmas, I had the best Christmas I ever had, okay? I went down to London and then I went ice skating, Christmas Eve in Hyde Park and then the circus and then had Christmas Day, lots of lovely food and stuff. You know, it's just... And for me to be at my age and say that's the best Christmas I've ever had because i got children, right? So they should have been the best Christmas. But the trouble is, come mid-morning, I wasn't present. I was too busy with the drink. You know, so it was, you know, life, sober life has given me wonderful, wonderful things, wonderful memories, you know, absolutely just beyond my belief. You know, and there's a lot of a lot of mistakes I make, but I keep going, you know, and I own my mistakes. But unfortunately, I make big mistakes and I'll just say sorry and I'll think that's enough. But when you've harmed other people, 
it's not enough, you know. And I try to make amends, daily amends, by being a better man. You know, this program teaches me to be a better man. I want to be a better man, you know, but I don't always get it right. You know, I have a lot of character defects, but I acknowledge those. You know, I acknowledge those. When I first came into recovery, I was a defect looking for a character. I didn't know what the fuck I was, you know, but I'm a man with problems, you know, with a drink. I thought the drink was the problem, but it wasn't the problem. You know, that was just a symptom. You know, I'm the problem, my ism. And if I stay away from people, my ism, it, I sponsor myself, you know, and I've got to be careful because if I go into that mode, I start talking to myself, I'll start listening to myself. And then the biggest downfalls is I'll start giving myself the answers, you know, because I'll fall into this power of projection and like you know, I think I know it all. I mean, uh, let's not underestimate the power of projection. You go to the pictures, the cinema, and you got a great big screen with this thing all going on. And it's all going on, and it comes out of this little lens at the back, a little tiny thing. That's my head, right? One little thought, and then I'm projecting into I think I know everything. You know, I think I absolutely know everything. You know, but I have things... Like I say, when I wake up and stuff, and the Just For Today card is very important for me. Just For Today card is very important for me. There's 42 things on there, and I got to pick one. And I was say, talking about this with somebody, and they said, I've heard you mention that a few times. And I said, well, let's go through them. So we count them, and then we go, well, is this one class as one or class as two? And I'm like, you know, just class it however you want. And if we come to 41 or 43, we know what we got here. <laughs> We got it wrong, but this thing on there, and it says we must avoid two pests, haste and indecision. I suffer with that. Oh, man, haste and indecision, you know? So I have to try and avoid that and use the program to help me avoid that. And then it says on there, you know, most people are as happy as they, make the, as they let themselves to be, see? Because... I'll speak to other alcoholics, right? And I'm listening and I let him rip on the phone and I'm there and I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't know what to say or I do know what to say, but I'm fearful of the outcome and stuff. So what I do is where well, I've been trained by my sponsor and I've heard it from other people that I, that I inspire to be like, now I don't want what they've got, but they show me how they've got it. And I'll be there on the phone and they'll be like, yeah, yeah. And I'll be like, oh, God, you know. And then I'll drop that big holy grail statement from AA because I just don't know what else to say. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I'll give it to them straight away. And I'll be go, have you eaten today? And boom. Have you eaten today? That's it. Blows me. I have had that given to me and I've given it to people because there's a lot to be said in that, you know, hungry angry, lonely, and tired. Well, I might be hungry, right? Because when I'm not right, I don't eat. And I might be lonely. And I might be tired. But am I angry? Yeah, because I'm in self and I'm feeling sorry for myself. How can you feel sorry for yourself and not be angry? Yeah? So that whole thing is massive for me. For me and I know for a lot of other people, you know, because you speak to them a bit late, they've had something to eat. And this includes myself. When I speak to my sponsor, he'll put the phone down, eat something, call me back. You know, and I used to think, plus, he doesn't know what I'm going through. Of course, he knows what I'm going through. He's been there. You know, because I'm very capable of 
falling into a dark place and sitting there. Not so much these days. You know, when I sit there and I sit there in the dark and I'm like, oh, poor me and poor me. And I'm sure it's because it's familiar territory. It's been familiar territory for many, many years. So I just sit there, you know, and I don't do anything about it. But I can do stuff about it. You know, I got a phone today. I got a sponsor. I got lots and lots of people's numbers in recovery. You know, let's look back and you got you got Bill W in the Mayflower Hotel with a coin and he can make a phone call and he's six months sober. He can make a phone call or he can buy a drink. And then sometimes I'm not in that situation, but I don't want to pick up the phone. But I do. You know, I always have contact with other alcoholics daily. Daily, you know. I get involved if I'm asked to do service. I'll do service, you know, when I help, I can help. If I can, I will, you know, this, it's given me, it's given me lots of things. You know, I still get that like whole, you know, when I'm not right, I've fallen out with somebody and I'm not eating, I'm on I'm the hole again. I still got a hole in the stomach without the drink. Yeah. But mine's worse than everybody else. It's frayed and the wind catches it and it flaps. You know what I mean? I still get that feeling without the drink. So that proves to me, it's me not the drink, you know, when I have to get myself right and get rid of that horrible, sick feeling. And I still have problems with things that I want to change the way I feel. And I was on, I was on holiday in Spain and it's at a convention and I'm like, you know, everybody's drinking Red Bull. And I'm like, so I'll drink Red Bull. So, and I'm like drinking Red Bull this night out dancing. And then I get back and I can't sleep and I'm on the balcony at five o'clock in the morning and I'm there smoking a full packet of cigarettes. I don't, I roll my own. I don't normally smoke. And I'm like, what's going on, you know? And then I'm down on the beach the next morning and you can hear the bells for the church and all I can hear is big fish, little fish, barks, big fish, little. And I'm like, this is crazy. I ain't doing that again. But the next night I'm like, gotta have more water than Red Bull. But I'm dancing there and my feet come alive, you know, it's a bit more alive. So I'm thinking, got to have more Red Bull with the water. Insanity, I do it again. It affects me and I do it again, you know. I have the problem with smoking these days. You know, I desperately want to give up the smoking. It's not doing me any favours. But you see, I love that when I haven't had a cigarette for a while, I love that little rush that changes how I feel. You know, and then I chase that with the next one and it doesn't happen. You know, I have, there's a lot of work to be done. You know, weird things like that. I'm one of those guys, when you sit in the bath and you get up quickly and you get that dizzy feeling and you, and you think, oh, no, no. And then I, I get disappointed when that doesn't happen. Yeah, that's crazy. You know, it's about change the way I feel. And I do a lot of this. I do a lot of talking with my hands and I have to be careful when I'm with other people because I'm a sensitive alcoholic, right? And I was with a friend a couple of weeks ago and I'm waving my hands and they're like, what are you getting upset about? And I'm like, I'm not, I'm not getting upset because I'm moving my hands. And then I'm like, well, now I'm upset because you think I'm upset. And now we're both going to be upset. So I have to be careful how I conduct myself with people, you know. And that's okay. It's just me, you know, all the saints are dead, you know. But I have to be mindful how, of how I act around other people because... For years, I didn't give a shit. I wasn't bothered if they're upset. I'm not bothered. You know, it was all about me, 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 you know. But I am very grateful today. Very grateful. Five, five minutes, Craig, my lovely.
That's cool. That's cool. And my life has changed unbelievably. You know, I didn't understand the unmanageability when they talked about you know, you're powerless over alcohol. Yeah, of course I am. I keep getting in trouble. And your life was unmanageable. I didn't know what that meant. Yeah, I didn't know what that meant. I thought, yeah, I got a mandrel with loads of nuts and bolts and chuck those out of having you. I didn't realize the unmanageability was me. Okay, and I still, I still have to watch that I keep everything manageable today, you know, because I get sidetracked very, very easily because I'm sensitive, yeah? And I have this, I have the program and that helps me. I have the fellowship that helps me. You know, the three most important things, the three most important things I have learned from AA about myself, right, is the first thing I must listen to the similarities, not the differences, because that's going to take me in the opposite direction. The second thing is the first word in the first step is we. That's very important because it stops me being me, myself, and I. I have to stay connected with other people. And the third thing, the third thing is it's okay not to be okay. As long as I'm telling somebody in a meeting or on the phone how I'm feeling, because I spent years saying, yeah, I'm okay. Yeah, I'm okay. When I've not been okay. You know, I'm man enough. I've learned enough to say I'm okay. You know, because I do what's suggested, you know, I read the book. And I'm in a big book group because I'm a lazy reader, you know, and I have to keep up with the, with, with the group. And when I read on my own, it's just my perspective. When I read with other people, I get their insight and their perspectives. You know, with all this, this is where we get the solution. It started with two guys. They began with the solution. You know, it's not a theory book for me today. I put it into practice because I've got a bike in the garage. And I got a manual and I can read what to do. And then I'll go downstairs and I'll start taking the bike apart. And I know within 10 minutes I'll be sweating. I'll be down to my pants thinking, what the hell do I do with this? So you get somebody who's a mechanic. They know what to do and they go through the process with you. You know, I need somebody like that always in my life. I need somebody who knows what I'm feeling knows where I've been and knows what I can achieve because they're doing it, you know? And I think I'm going to wrap it there, but I think I'd, I'd like to thank you all for being part of my recovery this evening.